The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 11, Blessings Out of Buffetings, or the Trials of the Ministry. Our text, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 15. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our strength and our Redeemer, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this morning we shall confine ourselves to verses 7 through 15. The trials of the ministry, or blessings out of buffetings. Now no man can reflect the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which Paul has spoken of in the immediate passage before this, without being in direct opposition to the God of this world, who's blinded the minds of men and women, lest they should know of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Indeed, Jesus Christ himself predicted that as we entered into the world to reveal his light by our witness through the power of the Holy Spirit, we should find nothing but trial, nothing but buffetings. He said, in the world, he shall have tribulation. So we find Paul in these verses before us describing what is to be the portion of the true minister of the gospel. Whether he be set aside to be a pastor or a teacher, an evangelist or a prophet, or whether it be the individual witness of the Christian in the home and in the workaday world. Out of his own experience, the Apostle Paul shares with us what Alan Redpath calls blessings out of buffetings. So we're going to examine, first of all, what I'm going to call the buffetings of the servant of God, and then secondly, the compensating blessings that are the portion of anyone who will serve the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth. Let us look then, first of all, at the buffetings of a servant of God, verses 7 through 9. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Paul introduces his subject by drawing attention to the fact that the glorious light of the gospel is carried in earthen vessels. Will you notice that? This light that we have to show to the world, like the torches that the men of Gideon had in pitchers, is carried in earthen vessels. The word earthen here simply means baked clay. Baked clay. This was Paul's evaluation of himself. As far as he was concerned, he did not think himself very important. And this is not only of Paul, but of all believers. He did not wish to be thought as somebody other than what he was, nothing more than an earthen vessel. Just a piece of baked clay, a container. 
His only concern was that he should be a receptacle willing to be broken, like those pictures in Gideon's day, that through the breaking and buffeting, the light might shine out. Beloved, I want to just say before we go any further, until we come to the place of being willing to be broken, willing to be nothing more than the earth and vessel, the picture, broken, the light will never come through. As long as we seek to build up ourselves, our reputation, our carnal energies, our fleshly efforts, the light will never come through. Men will see you, men will see me, but they won't see Jesus. Only as we decrease and he increases will the light be seen. Isn't it interesting that the words I've just quoted were the words of John the Baptist and his one ambition and prayer was that he might decrease in order that his Lord might increase and concerning him Jesus said he was a burning and a shining light. When you and I are prepared to be just earthen vessels, for that's all we are, made of clay, ready to be broken, God's light will shine through. Yes, that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. So the apostle makes it evident from the outset that in and of ourselves we're weak and fragile and therefore subject to all manner of trials and tribulations. Then he lists four kinds of buffeting, to which every child of God and every servant of God is vulnerable. And I want us to look at them together. Here they are. Here's the first one. Verse 8. There are the pressures of life. The pressures of life. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. A better rendering reads, in all things being pressed, but not oppressed. Now every age has its own peculiar pressures, but whether in Paul's day or ours, they're designed by the devil to hem us in until we capitulate and surrender. As we reflect upon our lives, we recall times in our homes, times in our church, times in the world outside where we've been brought to a place where we've had to cry, it's intolerable, I can't take it anymore, the pressure is beyond me. And at that moment, we've been in the corner. We've been in the corner. And if the devil had had his way, we'd have been utterly and hopelessly defeated. We would have capitulated, surrendered to the enemy. But in moments like this is when, listen, through our absolute pressure, Jesus Christ can come in and through us reveal his light. Just an exposure to him in that moment is the opportunity for him to demonstrate that he's equal to any situation. The pressures of life. As we shall see in a moment, Paul learned the secret of how to turn these buffetings of pressure into blessings of power. What is important to observe, however, that there is no one who will serve Jesus Christ without being subjected to daily pressures. It is our lot. And I want to say to anyone here this morning, who imagines that being a Christian is not being subjected to buffetings, let me tell you, read Paul again. Understand the scriptures again. The Christian is not invited to a life of ease, not a life of tolerance and compromise, not to a life of complete complacency. Oh no, not to a life of lack of involvement, but into a life of pressure. It is ours 
to be subjected to pressure. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. But with the pressures of life, there are also the perplexities of life. Look at verse 8 again. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Someone has translated this as being bewildered, but not benighted. Paul is telling us here that circumstances often bring a man to his wit's end, so that he hardly knows which way to go and what to do. But all of this has never yet brought a true Christian to the place of despair, ultimate despair. A Christian always knows a way out. There is no temptation that can take him at any point without a way of escape. Yes, we can be perplexed. We can come to our wit's end, so to speak. We can say, Lord, the common grace you have given me and the common sense you have given me haven't a way through in this situation. I need something above common grace. I need redemptive grace. I need you in all your fullness at this moment. How many times you and I have echoed the apostles' words in moments of doubt and despondency? And then, wonderfully, sweetly, assuringly, the Lord Jesus himself has drawn near. Be of good cheer, he says. Be of good cheer. Paul could recall such an experience as this when he lay in a prison on one occasion, and in those hours of the night, when utterly perplexed and possibly in despondency, the Lord came to him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, and you're going to do the very same in Rome. They want to take your life, but I'm going to be with you. I'm standing by you, and I'll bring you to the place to which I have appointed you. David knew a similar occasion, you remember, when he could say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thank God when the devil shoots his fiery doubts of darts of doubt. When the devil fires his fiery darts of doubt and fear, Jesus Christ becomes our shield of faith. That shining out of his own glory, which repels and rebukes the devil, however hard he tries to strike. There are the pressures of life. There are the perplexities of life. But more than that, there are the persecutions of life. Look at the next verse. Persecuted but not forsaken. Persecuted but not forsaken. Or as one commentator has it, pursued but not abandoned. Pursued but not abandoned. We can read through the Acts of the Apostles and every page seems to have the story of a man pursued but not abandoned. Paul had this experience. But he was never forsaken. Indeed, in the last epistle he ever wrote, he could say, All men forsook me. All men. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. How wonderful to know that the commission of the Savior promises not only, listen carefully, the program that we have to follow, but also the presence that we are to enjoy. He never says go without saying lo. He never says go into the world without saying and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Yes, his commission is always accompanied by his companionship. Commission, companionship together. So that though the persecutions of life may be severe, 
He has reminded us in his gracious promise that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Indeed, these were words written to men and women who had become Christians and who had been persecuted by their kith and kin. Hebrew believers scattered all over Asia Minor. And as they had to leave their homes and their loved ones, privated of everything and deprived of the very best, the word came to them, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Jesus promised persecution to his disciples. He said, as the age draws near to his coming, he said, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. But in that very context, in John chapter 16, we read these words, I will send a comforter to you. I will not leave you orphans abandoned. I will come to you. This mighty spirit of God making real Christ's other self the Lord Jesus himself enters into that very situation and in tribulation we triumph. Why? Because amidst the pressures and perplexities and persecutions, he is more than adequate. These are but the buffetings that make his presence real in us and his power real through us. What a word this is to persecuted Christians across the world today. I think of them in lands where the gospel is not allowed, where Christians are underground. I think of the eastern part of Europe at this hour. I think of some in Vietnam. I think of some in Portuguese West Africa in parts of the Congo. I think of those beloved saints of God under the scourge of communism in China. I think of them there underground in Russia. And what are they proving? They're proving that the buffetings are the secret of blessings. That there is no situation in which Jesus Christ doesn't become involved and adequate. There are the pressures of life. There are the perplexities of life. There are the persecutions of life. But look again. Paul puts this last because we all know it. Yes, we know it deeply in our souls. There are the thrashings or punishments of life. Cast down but not destroyed. A more accurate version is flung to the ground as someone lost in battle yet not doomed. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, knocked down but not knocked out. Knocked down but not knocked out. It is reasonable to believe from this verse and other autobiographical passages that Paul had faced defeat. Yes, defeat. On many an occasion. After all, he was only a human. He wasn't perfect, and there are many times in his life when he had faced defeat. But to him, these experiences had been a tremendous lesson. He had learned that the very thrashings he had had, the punishments he had had, had only made him lean more on God. And that losing a battle is not necessarily losing the war. A man can lose a battle without losing the war. And I want to say that this is true in the Christian experience for you and me. The fact that a believer is struck down and beaten to the earth does not eliminate him from the field of conflict. With a psalmist, he can say, Though I fall, I shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth me with his hand. And there isn't any Christian in this place this morning, or within the sound of my voice, 
who hasn't tasted the bitter fruit of defeat at some point or another in your life. But I want to tell you, my friend, the fact that you've lost the battle doesn't mean to say that you've lost the war. In that very situation of having fallen, being cast to the ground, through that very buffeting, you can prove Christ to be the victor who not only raises you up, but leads you forth to conquer. In a very physical sense, Paul must have felt like this, a defeated and a cast-down man when he was stoned at Lystra, you remember, and dragged out of the city as dead. But by the very mercy of God, he was lifted up again, quickened to life, and set on his way to fight the good fight of faith. And I believe you and I have had experiences like that. I speak for myself. I know there are times when the devil has brought me to a place where I've had to admit defeat, defeat. But I've looked him straight in the face and said, you may have lost this conflict, O evil one, but I shall rise again for Jesus Christ will cause me to triumph. And this is the meaning of that glorious word that our Savior is more than conqueror. He not only beats the devil, but he more than beats the devil. He overcomes even the defeat into which one of his own dear children has fallen. These then are some of the buffetings of a servant of God, the pressures of life, the perplexities of life, the persecutions of life, the defeats of life. And no one can claim to be engaged in the service of Jesus Christ without encountering one or all of these at some point or another in his Christian experience. But having shared these buffetings with us, Paul now comes to the heart of our message and to this amazing passage, which just leaps out of this context for us here this morning. With the buffetings, there are the compensating blessings for every true child of God and for every true servant of God. So will you look with me at verses 10 and 11? The blessings of a servant of God. Yes, there are the buffetings, beloved. Every one of us is subject to them, the buffetings, but with the buffetings, the blessings. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The pictures broken by buffeting, but the light coming out in blessing. Let's look at this together. In these two verses, Paul describes a process which is in operation in the life of every yielded Christian. And I want to underscore every yielded Christian. Nothing can happen to a believer which does not work together for good. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is the wonder of the sovereign dealings of God with his own people. Nothing can ever strike me. Nothing can ever happen to me. No pressure can come into my life. No perplexity. No persecution. No punishment can ever come into my life which doesn't ultimately work together for good to them that love God. To accept the pressures and perplexities and persecutions and punishments of life is like accepting the very nails that hold me to the cross so that my self-life is crucified, my earthen vessel is smashed, and the life of Jesus in me comes through with all its radiance and power and glory. So that the greater the buffetings, the greater the blessings. Until we come to a place where we rejoice in the very buffetings, 
We all must welcome them. That's the meaning of James in his epistle when he says, Rejoice! Rejoice! Count it every joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Why? Because those very buffetings are the very secret of the blessings. Oh, what victory this gives. What gifts? This doesn't make us stoical. Oh, God forbid. This doesn't make us indifferent. Oh, no. This doesn't make us callous. Not a bit of it. It makes us tender and sweet and compassionate for others. But it does mean this, that our whole view of the Christian life isn't one of sitting back and being sad, isn't one of being absolutely morbid and pessimistic, it isn't one of being defeatist. It is rather won our victory all the way through because the more the buffetings, the greater the blessings. So we see that the cross is more than just a pious sentiment. It is a personal experience. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The seed must die if it would live. Likewise, we must die to all that there is of self in order that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. It's a principle of life out of death. A principle of life out of death. Now Paul names three blessings which flow from a life of buffeting. Look at the first one, please. Verse 12. The blessing of a crucified life. The blessing of a crucified life. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Death worketh in us, says Paul, using the editorial we, but life in you, who are at Corinth. And any life that you know there at Corinth, as a result of my ministries, because of the pressures, the perplexities, the persecutions, the punishments, the buffetings I've experienced, as they've broken my life, so self has shown itself to be inadequate and instead Jesus has come through to be your blessing. Death in us, life in you. Now, my friends, follow me carefully here. It is possible for a Christian to live after the flesh and therefore to die in the sense in which everything he says and does carries the marks of death. In fact, to persist in such a life of carnality, to live after the flesh, may result in being cut off prematurely, like Ananias and Sapphira, for instance, or like the Christians at Corinth, who because of their fleshly and carnal ways, especially in relation to the Lord's table, were cut off. Yes, some among you are sickly, says the apostle, and some sleep. They've been cut off. To live after the flesh doesn't pay. It doesn't only obscure the light. It doesn't only hide Jesus. But it doesn't pay because it carries nothing but the marks and stench of death. If we live after the flesh, we shall die. On the other hand, if we live after the spirit, we shall live. If we, through the spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body, we shall live. A crucified life issues in an abundant life. This, of course, demands a life of discipleship. Jesus said, Whosoever he be that beareth not his cross, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. But when a believer says, Lord Jesus, I want the cross to be operative in my life. I want the sentence of the cross to rule out everything of carnality and selfishness and fleshliness in my life. By thy Holy Spirit, apply the principle and power of the cross to my life so everything that is of myself, of my carnal self, may die. And that Jesus may come through, the Holy Spirit undertakes to do that very work and out of a crucified life.
there comes the stream of blessing. When I know what it is to die, when I know what it is by faith to claim the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of my body that Jesus might live in me, I'll tell you what happens. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ is released in my personality. And through my eyes and through my lips and through my handshake and through my testimony, Jesus comes through in resurrection power and life in a way he'll never come through otherwise. To accept this way of the cross is to make an impact upon every situation. Paul reminds his readers that that is exactly what happened in the church at Corinth. Death worked in us, but life in you. So the first blessing is the blessing of a crucified life. The blessing of a crucified life. And I want to ask you very simply, before we go any further, do you know anything about the blessing of a crucified life? Can you honestly say, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. But secondly, will you notice, it's the blessing of a fortified life. Verse 13 the blessing of a fortified life. We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed, therefore have I spoken. We also believe, therefore we speak. Obedience even unto the death of the cross does not make us sad and silent. Oh no. On the contrary, like the psalmist from whom Paul quotes here in Psalm 116 in verse 10, we are strengthened both in our convictions as well as our confessions. We are strengthened both in our convictions as well as our confessions. There is nothing which strengthens our faith in God and therefore our testimony for God like being identified with the principle of a cross. Even in the twilight of Revelation, Job knew this experience. He could say, you remember, though he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. We heard it in our song this morning from the lips of the flaming prophet Isaiah. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Yes, and lean not to thine own understanding. Yes, to die to self-trust is to be fortified in our faith in God. Look more, not only Job, but Paul. We've quoted him before, we quote him again in the full blaze of the gospel light. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith is strengthened. Faith is strengthened in the fires of Calvary. It's out of the cross life that trust in God becomes unshakable. And imperturbable. And so Paul's eye says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Nothing could silence him. He had a message, glorious and tremendous, and he must share it. And the psalmist says, I believe, so I spake. And Paul says, I believe, and so I speak. Why? Because I proved my belief in the pressures, in the perplexities, in the persecutions, in the beatings of life, and the buffetings of life. And therefore I can speak with conviction. Dr. Campbell Morgan illustrates this point tremendously in one of his little touches which come again and again in his commentary on Corinthians. He tells of a friend who entered the ministry 
and had remarkable success. At the time, he was young and fresh from college, but a very brilliant preacher, and he invited him to preach in his own church when he was ministering in the city of Birmingham in the Midlands of England. When that young man stepped down from the pulpit, Campbell Morgan turned to his wife and said, What a wonderful preacher he is. Wasn't that wonderful? After a moment's pause, Mrs. Morgan quietly replied, Yes, it'll be even more wonderful when he has suffered. Then adds Dr. Morgan, he did suffer, and it was more wonderful. Out of the buffetings come the blessings. Even the outsider knows a man who's been crucified. Even the outside man knows a Christian who's been fortified through the buffetings of life. There's something different about them. There isn't the arrogance. There isn't the pride. There isn't the cockiness. There's a coming through of a life which is unchallengeable. It's the life of Jesus with all its sweetness and searchingness, with all its power and all its saving grace. Out of buffetings come the blessing. There is an authority of conviction and a reality of confession that a man has when he knows what it is to have been crucified with Christ. The blessing of a crucified life the blessing of a fortified life. But in the third place, notice, there is the blessing of a glorified life. Verses 14 and 15. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by or more literally with Jesus. And shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Now, in these closing two verses, Paul tells us not only of the blessing which is expected in time, but of the blessing which is going to be enjoyed in eternity, in a coming day. For the day is coming, says the apostle, when we shall share the resurrection life of Jesus in all its fullness. And then with a glorified body, we shall be presented before the presence of the Father with exceeding joy. And the life that's going to please the Father in that day, the life that's going to be unashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, is a life that's not only been crucified, but fortified, and I may add, glorified through buffeting. There is something which is going to happen in glory which is determined by how we live here upon earth. And when we come to our next sec section in just a week's time, this is going to be expanded in the most glorious fashion in one of the most unique and exquisite passages on the afterlife we find anywhere in the New Testament. For though we groan in this earthly body, says Paul, we've got a house in the heavens. And one day we're going to stand in that house, that house, a new body, glorified in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he says, my longing is that in that day I shan't be found naked. I shan't be found naked. But there shall be all the glory that God intended for my life. And he reminds us that as one star differeth to another in glory, so we are going to differ from each other in the sense in which some are going to shine more brightly than others in that day. And that brightness of blessing in that day will be determined by the way we faced buffeting down here. 
If we've accepted as the nails that hold us to the cross in order that our self-life and our rights and our reputation and everything that smacks of self may die and Jesus come through, then we're adding to the glory with which we're going to be presented before the Father's presence and at the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul talks about a glorified state here when we shall be presented yonder. Charles Erdman, that tremendous expositor of a past age, puts it beautifully. Being delivered unto death, he says, doesn't give us a horizon that is bounded by a funeral cottage, but rather by the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's interpreting the same thought, that in that day, that day we talk about as the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the saints addressed in their garments of righteousness. Oh, there's going to be a beauty and a glory about them. But their difference in that day is going to be determined by the way they've lived down here. Have they really, have they really manifested Jesus? And can Jesus be ever manifested in a picture that hasn't been broken? The answer is no. Victory only comes when the pictures are broken and the light shines out. These then are the buffetings that lead us into the blessing. So Paul sums up his treatment of this exalted subject by informing his readers that the blessing of a crucified life, the blessing of a fortified life, the blessing of a glorified life magnifies the grace of God to everyone who knows what it is to say, thank you God, thank you God for the grace you've given me to accept buffetings in order that out of my life may flow blessings. To the glory of God. That's that meaning of that tremendous closing word there. Look at it yourself. Verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. I tell you, we really living in victory, beloved. Everyone is living in victory when pressure strikes and we can say, thank you, Lord. When perplexity comes and we can say, thank you, Lord. When persecutions come, and we can say, thank you, Lord. When defeats come, and there in the dust of defeat, we say, thank you, Lord. I've lost the battle, but not the war. Because one thing I have over the devil is, I may lose a battle, but I can't lose the war. You are my triumphant Lord. Take me up. Renew me. Teach me the lesson of having been defeated, and take me on to victory. For this is blessing out of buffeting. What a difference. What a difference of attitude. This is to the normal, is it normal, subnormal experience of most Christians who under pressure or perplexity or persecution or defeat go into utter pessimism and moaning and lamenting of the lot until despair just comes as a pall upon their lives and they're never ever able to rise again. And alas, alas, throughout our land today, this represents the majority of Christians. Oh, may God, oh, may God bring us into this fullness of release today. Among the great saints and spiritual giants who knew this principle of the cross in their lives and so communicated, blessing out of buffeting, was the great General Booth. Indeed, his impact for good is being felt around the world even at this hour. And tens of thousands of men and women, old and young, rise up to call him blessed. In an art gallery, there's a portrait of the general with a radiant glowing face bent over a Bible praying. The story is told that one evening 
the janitor as he was closing up the museum for the day. Saw an old man alone kneeling before that portrait of the great General Booth. And he was absolutely alone and completely oblivious to anyone watching him. But with his eyes fixed on that wonderful picture and with tears streaming down his face, the janitor hold the old man saying, Oh God, do it again, do it again, do it again. Fulfill in me, in other words, that which made this man such a blessing out of buffeting. And I want to tell you, beloved, that Jesus Christ is waiting in this sanctuary this morning to do it again in you, to do it again in me, to reproduce his life in me. For let me remind you that this is the way the master trod and should not the servant tread it still. He who left heaven's glory and took upon him the form of a man and of a servant was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And as he became willing to die out of his life, came the blessing. There is a cross that we must bear. If we would be disciples true, it calls for death with Christ to share and faith that claims the life that's new. That cross means buffeting and shame and grace to travel the Calvary road. But for the sake of Jesus' name, we dare not shrink to share that load. So we must glory in the cross and take the buffetings of life. For blessing comes from suffering loss and victories won through pain and strife. Out of buffetings come blessings. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, in the stillness of this moment, we pray that thou will take the message from thy holy word and cause, we pray thee, that this principle of the cross, by the mighty application of the Spirit, may become operative in my life, in all our lives. That out of death shall come life, out of buffeting blessing. We ask this for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.